This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. This episode is brought to you by Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. Derek McGill, who was interviewed on an episode from season one, dropped out of the University of Michigan. He went from the dean's list to leaving school. Why? Because he was bored. Not because it was too hard for him or he wasn't good enough for an elite school. It just wasn't good enough for him. It wasn't bringing him what he wanted. It wasn't worth it. The prestige and the pleasure of others that he was there, not a good enough reward considering the life that he wanted to build. He quit. He joined Praxis. He's a digital marketing guru, all self-taught. After being in the program, we liked his work so much, we hired him on as our marketing director. Derek is one of many examples of young people today who are realizing the world is changing. It's changing fast. There's more opportunity than ever to be your own signal, to be your own credential, to create things and demonstrate your value creation potential through what you've done in tangible ways. Build a website, build an online presence, get work experience. Don't worry. It sounds overwhelming, but you get all of that in the year-long Praxis program. It's not easy, but no great adventure is. Discoverpraxis.com slash apply. You can join Derek and many others in building the education revolution, starting with your own life. Today, I am joined by Taylor Pearson, author of the number one best-selling book, The End of Jobs. And the thesis, the concept behind the book is uh, just an idea that I means it's just absolutely near and dear to my heart. It's a big part of what we talk about on this podcast. Obviously, it's a big part of Praxis. So I'm absolutely delighted to have Taylor join us and talk a little bit about the book. So Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So uh, here's the part where I look like the worst podcast host ever, especially because we've had the <laughs> we've had this scheduled. I haven't read your book, Taylor. I put it on my list when we scheduled this, and I was like, "Great, download this, put it on my reading list." And somehow it got lost in my list of books. And I just realized today when I, the calendar invite came up, and I usually always read the books before my guests come on. So I am coming at this. I'm going off of the reviews that I've read. I've I, I've got it, you know, in front of me. I've got the table of contents. I'm going off the website. But I got to tell you, this is not where I like to come from. So you're going to have to give me a lot of help on, on what's in the book. No worries. It'll be that way. Everyone will be on the same footing here. So I'll have to really actually explain myself intelligently. That's right. I'm, I'm going to try to pretend like this is some sort of advantage. You know, like I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who hasn't read it yet since yeah, I haven't. I think, I think you're coming at it the right way. <laughs> so um, I, I mean, I love this, this concept and I want to, I want to talk a lot about the book and what it's about, but I want to get to know just a little bit more about you. What, what, what's your background and what led you to author this book? So uh, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I went to a small liberal arts college in Birmingham, Alabama. I went there primarily because I applied to maybe 12 schools and they all looked pretty much the same. And that one was the cheapest. And so, if, you know, as with any commodity good, you just buy the cheapest one. Um, and so that was what I did. Um, and then I ended up, um, going to, I kind of had in the back of my head that my, how I was raised, kind of the people I understood, there was, there weren't really a lot of career options that, you know, like, there's like kind of accountant and lawyer and doctor and corporate. And, um, and so I wasn't very good at math or science. Uh, and I thought business was kind of icky at the time. Uh, and so I was going to be uh, a lawyer and I ended up actually doing a study abroad program because I was studying Spanish and I thought, well, if I'm ever going to actually learn Spanish, I should, should go somewhere and learn it. Um, and spent six months at a university in Argentina. Um, they kind of really opened my eyes to, you know, the breadth of the human experience, um, but also like some new career possibilities. I met expats that were down there that were teaching English and I met expats that had businesses based in Argentina. I met expats that were running, um, internet based businesses from Argentina, hmm. um, and kind of, you know, started the wheels turning for me. Um, and so that was kind of the, the kickoff point. And then, um, bounced around. I was an interpreter for a while. I taught English in Brazil for a while, um, and got more and more into internet businesses, 
Um, I had some side projects I was doing on my own. I went to work with a marketing agency doing search engine optimization uh, and then ended up working at a small business. Um, maybe we were 25 or 30 people, I think, at the largest. Um, and it was a physical product business based out of San Diego. Um, but we had people all around the world. I was living in Asia, running the marketing for the business. We had another, there was another company based out of Hong Kong um, that was a forum for entrepreneurs. So they had this one physical product business, these, the two entrepreneurs I was working with. Um, and the separate forum, uh, maybe a thousand um, internet-based business owners that were running their businesses from around the world. Um, and so uh, I was at their conference actually in 2014 when kind of the idea sparked. And you know, you imagine I'm sitting in um, the Conrad Hotel in Bangkok, Thailand, which is where the conference is every year. There's maybe 300 um, entrepreneurs there, and everyone's kind of it's like Wednesday morning. Everyone's walking into the, the breakfast buffet with flip-flops. Um, no one's working that week because everyone's at the conference hanging out. Um, and I'm sitting next to one of my friends, and we're kind of having this conversation like, how do you articulate this to someone that's like sitting in a cubicle in Birmingham? Yep. <laughs> um, how, do I, you, how do you explain what's going on and like how this is suddenly possible? Like what the internet means is technology and like what's going on in the world? Um, and so that was kind of the genesis that I was trying to take, you know, how do you take someone that you know, I would say is kind of on the fringe of entrepreneurship, maybe they're reading a little bit about startups or they're reading about tech and they, they, they kind of feel like there's something percolating, but they're not quite sure what it is. How do you take that and explain, okay, you're curious, you're interested, here's what the opportunity is and here's how you can take advantage of it. I, I love when you mention your, your first time abroad, meeting these expats, running these businesses. And I've heard many similar experiences. I, I had one myself where it's like for the first time you say, wait, wait a minute, you can do that. Like you're allowed to do that. I, I, I met a gentleman. Uh, I was in, I was on the way to, to Kenya for, um, a couple months and just a uh, layover in Dubai. And I met a guy there who was from England and he had just quit his job as a, some, something in the financial realm. And he opened a scuba diving, um, company in Dubai. And he was there just for people who spoke English and wanted to do scuba diving lessons. Uh, he just offered them and taught them. And he's like, I'm living the life of my dreams. I love it. I'm in the water all the time. I don't have to work that much. And I remember I had this realization, like this guy just, he just quit his job and did this just because he wanted to, because it was a cool place to live. Cause there was a, like he could create this and you, you know, you kind of come with this permission based mindset, like, well, wait a minute, this wasn't on the career counselors list of, pot <laughs> of potential jobs. I think that's a really big moment for a lot of people, just the knowledge that these other options exist in the first place. It's that first step before you start to figure out how do, how do I maybe get there? Yeah, there's the, the unknown unknowns. And as soon as you can color in a little bit of that space, some interesting possibilities usually come up. Yeah, ab absolutely. So, so you got this, you know, this, this moment where you realized, okay, this is, this is very cool. How do you explain that this is possible? That's out there, that this is a growing, this sort of entrepreneurship is a growing um, trend. And, I'm going to read the, the, uh, description on your Taylor person, uh, sorry, Taylor Pearson.me. You say, I believe we're living through one of the largest socioeconomic shifts in human history. The move from the knowledge economy to the entrepreneurial economy. We're racing toward the ends of jobs and entering the entrepreneurial era. Uh, entrepreneurship can create more money, meaning, and freedom in your life and the lives of those you love. So you wanted to explain this to the world. What was your, how did you go about actually putting the book together? I know you interviewed hundreds of people. How did you get those interviews? What, how did you decide to, what to include? And, and, you know, did you start with an outline or what was that process like? So the, really the research probably started, um, three or four years before I started reading the book and the research didn't start because I was thinking about writing a book. I was trying to figure it out for myself. Hmm. Um, and so I was at the time I, I mentioned I was working with this company. We sold, um, I was the marketing manager and we sold uh, B2B hospitality equipment. So our, like we had a few different uh, product lines, but uh, parking equipment, particularly for valet parking, those like big black boxes uh, you see outside valet stands. Uh, we sold portable bars. We actually we had a cat furniture. We sold um, key lock key boxes. Wait, cat kind of, furniture? Yeah, we also had a cat <laughs> furniture business. That is amazing. Um, See that that's one of those jobs that you probably didn't know existed. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Cat furniture mogul. Um, 
so we we had a anyway we had this company a few of these product lines and then the other business um was uh this kind of entrepreneurs forum so um i was you know working day to day kind of learning marketing um teaching myself marketing growing this product business um but on the side i was like hanging out you know on the weekends at nights with um, all these people running internet businesses, traveling around the world. Um, and so that kind of like got my wheels turning. I was like, you know, there's something here. And like, you know, I, you meet one person, it kind of opens the door and you meet 300 and you're like, what? there's something here. Like this isn't uh, a fluke. Um, and so that was kind of how the process started. I was like talking to them. How did their businesses work? Uh, I was reading books about it, books they were recommending to me. Um, and that's kind of where I started to like to put the pieces together uh, for myself. And then the conversation I had where we said, you know, how do we explain this? I thought, okay, you know, I've, I've kind of taken me three years. I've put together these pieces for myself. Now I'm going to put them into something where, um, you know, I, I can package it up into a book and actually explain it to someone else. Were you a writer already before you wrote this book? And were you writing regularly? Oh, well, so I had a, the, my site I've been writing on for four or five years. And it's always been a side project, um, until the book where it became kind of more of a, a focus thing for me. Um, so I want to, I want to jump right into a couple of the topics in the book, uh, at, at your website where you've got a description of the book, you have some really, really compelling paragraphs about what's in it. And one, one that jumped out of me is uh, in this book, you'll learn why the turkey problem means accounting may be the riskiest profession in the 21st century, while entrepreneurship may be the safest. Okay, you got to explain this one. So um, I took I took this idea. The idea of the turkey problem is from um, Nassim Taleb. It's from his book, uh, Anti-Fragile. He mm -hmm. writes about a lot of risk management topics. So the example that he gives, and then I'll kind of translate it over to the career market, um, is imagine you're, imagine you're a turkey, you know, you're born, you go into the turkey pen, um, and the butcher comes out the first day and he puts the food in the trough and you eat the food and you walk around the turkey pen and you know, sunbathe and everything's well and good. And this is what happens every day in a turkey's life. You know, the next day the butcher comes out, he feeds the turkey, you walk around. And so every day you have this increased statistical confidence that what's going to happen the next day is the butcher walks out and he feeds you uh, and you walk around the turkey pen and everything's great. And of course, that's true every day up until uh, the day before Thanksgiving um, <laughs> when suddenly things go go very, very wrong. And it, at that point, you know, it's it's too late, right? Like the, you've eaten all the food. You don't know how to get out of the pen. Like it's when the butcher walks out with the, the hatchet, like it's already um, too late in the game. And so I think What's going on, um, you know, and I pick on accountants, honestly, because I have a lot of friends that are accountants. And I was trying to explain to them what's going on. And so I just I just use accountants. Um, but there's a lot of people that are in um, middle management positions in large corporations in large government bureaucracies that aren't creating any actual market value. Uh, and as the tools get better and better to be able to measure, are you creating any market value? Um, and you have someone that is in a position where, you know, you imagine an accountant that um, either, you know, some sort of software automation technology comes in where you can cut the uh, the number of people in the department by half um, and replace them with some sort of technology. Um, you know, I have friends who have their accounting done by um, people that are trained uh, online that live in, you know, Sri Lanka and um, charge very, very reasonable rates, much more reasonable rates than someone in the U.S., um, would charge and, you know, firms are getting savvier and savvier to this kind of stuff. So, you know, you imagine someone that's 40 years old, they're mid career, um, they should be in their peak earning years. They've got a mortgage, um, they're trying to save for retirement and all of a sudden their skill set um, has just become effectively obsolete. Their network, the people, their, you know, their professional contacts are in the same industry, which has just become obsolete. And all of a sudden, uh, you're sort of in this turkey scenario where um, because you didn't kind of pick your head up and look around and say, you know, maybe I should be preparing for what's going on. Um, you're caught unaware and the, the implications are much, much worse than if you can adapt earlier. Yeah. You know, that's, that's something that um, I, I talk about a lot with young people is find the things that are the most uniquely human, right? So following rules and repeating known tasks machines and software 
are better than that at humans and even increasingly complex sets of you know solving equations or, or basic problems that have a, a sort of formulaic nature to them um, so the things that humans do best are that that creative problem solving that entrepreneurial type of you know innovative type of behavior and the the challenge is pretty much everything you do in a, in a standard education whether it's K through 12 or college is very much geared towards, that kind of following rules. I mean, even down to the to the methods themselves of this is how you this is how you pass. You do all the things the teacher laid out in the assignment uh, and the homework. And so you you know you're sort of getting a lot of people who are good at doing very specific things, who are good at following rules and memorizing things, all of which are easily replaceable uh, over time with with software and machines. So I, I know this has huge implications for just the way that we view the traditional education methods and how effective or ineffective they may be. But what can someone as an individual, how can you take this and say, okay, this is good news. I shouldn't be scared of this. This is an opportunity. What's the flip side of that? These, these sort of um, supposedly seen as low risk jobs where you just, you know, you become accountant, you're always safe, you'll have something to do. As those become uh, more and more replaceable, the opportunity for entrepreneurship emerges. So how do you, how do you take that and say, this is actually a good thing? And what are the steps to, 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 to capitalize on that? Yeah, great question. So uh, the, the way I kind of talk about it in the book is um, if you think about any system, any system has a limit. So to give a very, very simple example, um, you know, you have a production line that has um, two machines and one machine produces five units an hour and the other machine produces one unit an hour. So any resources you spend increasing um, the machine that does five, which is not the bottleneck, doesn't help you. So if you double the one from five to ten and the other one stays at one, you can still only you know, produce one unit per hour if this other one's the bottleneck. But um, everything you apply to this bottleneck all of a sudden has real implications. If you can double from one to two, then you double your output. If you can go from one to five, then you know you five X your output because both can do five units an hour. So you take this idea of um, every system has a bottleneck. And you look at um, kind of what's happened in the West over the last seven or eight hundred years. Um, we've moved from kind of agriculture being the bottleneck to um, uh, you know the industrial economy to industrial tasks being the bottleneck, um, and then kind of over the course of the 20th century, we moved towards um, the knowledge economy that knowledge was the bottleneck. And I think now what we're doing is we're moving into this entrepreneurial era where it's um, entrepreneurial, it's the creative stuff that's uh, being the bottleneck. And so, you know, to your point, most of what our educational system, most of how we're taught, most of how we're socialized is based on this worldview that the, um, the scarce resource, the bottleneck in the system is, um, you know, doing these rote tasks or kind of doing these repetitive things that can be documented, that can, um, eventually be automated or, or even, um, or just not that if you have enough knowledge, enough information, like that's the problem. We just need to get people more access to knowledge, but with the internet, that's basically been solved, right? Right. Um, so, and I think, you know, the, in my mind, it's a very, very hopeful, very, very optimistic message because, I mean, the reality is if you were born in 1900, and unless you had access to a lot of capital, um, you basically had to do rote industrial work. They, there just weren't a lot of uh, other options. It was very, very difficult um, to get access to knowledge, to get access to capital, um, to be able to go do interesting creative work. Um, and that's, you know, that's not true anymore that, uh, you know, I was uh, reading a book last week. Um, they're talking about the cost to start a newspaper. Uh, they, in 1865, if you use, I think like 1995 inflation adjusted dollars was $2.38 uh, million. If you wanted to hmm. report on the news, it cost you $2.38 million. That was kind of the cost of entry. And, um, you know, now it takes an iPhone and a Twitter account. Yeah. Um, or an iPhone and, a, you know, a WordPress account, it's, um, you know, so close to zero as to effectively be zero. Uh, and so none of that's true anymore that, you know, the ability to put yourself in a position where, um, you can earn your livelihood, where you can create value through interesting creative work has never been more real of a possibility than it is today. There's a great, uh, chart in the book, um, bold by Peter Diamandis and it, it it shows in adjusted dollars the I think it's like 1980s or 1990s the the value of an iPhone today uh, all the things that it has so you know you would have needed a 
Um, and some of them you can't, you wouldn't have even been able to get, but you would have needed a video camera and an audio recorder and a G, you know, some sort of GPS navigation. I don't even know if that existed and all the things that are in there. And it's like $900,000 plus in, <laughs> in today's dollars. And, uh, you can get them for, for a couple hundred in your pocket. So, so all of this, you know, not only on the individual level and in terms of education, there's also a lot of implications because of the, you know, large firms exist, um, primarily because it's a way to reduce transaction costs. Uh, so you don't have to go out and hire an individual to do your you know, website work every single time you need it done. So you just hire someone full-time in-house and et cetera. But now technology has brought transaction costs down so low, which is why we see a lot more freelancing and, and solopreneurship and things like that. What are the implications for this economic shift for firms? How does it change the way that they look for talent, the way that they structure themselves? Is it, does it result in flatter firms, smaller firms? What are, what are sort of the implications um, on that end of things? That's a good question. I, I don't actually answer that question. I'm working on a second book right now, and that's um, kind of at the heart of it. I think um, you know, there, the few of the statistics I've seen, like uh, one of them is the Small Business Administration puts out something like, um, like since 1990, um, you know, firms on average above 500 employees have been consistently shedding jobs and firms under 500 have been consistently adding jobs, uh, which makes sense to me that, I, you know, the average size of the firm uh, is going to come down for exactly the reasons you listed that, you know, transaction cost and marginal cost, um, are coming down. And so it kind of only makes, um, logical sense that the average size of, um, uh, the firm is going to come down. And I think really the, uh, you know, the, the natural end of it is that, you know, the natural size of the company in a world where, um, transaction costs are zero and marginal costs are zero is one. Um, and so I think I encourage a lot of people to start thinking about that way, thinking of yourself as a firm, as a company, um, there's actually a good book called The Startup Review yeah. by uh, Ben Kasnoka, um, the kind of those who I stole the the metaphor from, um, and I think that's that's certainly the way things are headed. Is that is that the book uh, with, co-authored with Reed Hoffman? Uh, it is LinkedIn. Okay, yeah, I, I thought so. Yeah, absolutely. That's a um, that's a concept that I think, and I'm and I'm hearing it more and more, um, is so so valuable, so powerful. In it's it's one of the things we hammer in uh, praxis with the participants that go through it. Is not only are you your own firm, but also you are your resume, or Google is your resume, right? What you've produced, the work you've produced, is more valuable than a formal credential. And that's something that you mentioned in the description of the book. Why this changing world? what it does to the value of sort of traditional signaling methods like formal credentials. Um, talk a little bit about that. What do you think, what do you think it does for credentials and what replaces them? If someone says, Hey, I want, you know, whether it's an investor or someone that I want to work for or work with or customers, I need to signal to them that I'm competent, I'm valuable, I'm worth working with. Um, you know, what is more valuable than the, the sort of old fashioned, you know, uh, degree in this new world? Yeah, I'm fascinated by uh, degrees in higher education because it's it like kind of denies all logic that it's, um, you know, you have something where the cost is going up very, very quickly. Um, the value, everyone will agree that the value is coming down. Um, and that there's more and more people doing it. I think um, one of the stats I saw from 2000, you know, to the beginning of human history, compared with 2000 to 2010, there were more college graduates globally between 2000 and 2010 than, you know, 2000 <laughs> from all of preceding history. So you have this, you know, this massive, um, you know, the chapter I call commoditization of credentialism, that you have something which is getting less and less valuable because, you know, it's acquiring knowledge, which is, um, something that the internet has made access to very, very cheap and very, very easy. And you have so many people, um, that have it. So, you know, to your question, how do you, um, how do you differentiate? I think, you know, one thing I, I often tell people, one thing I think about for myself as well is, you know, track record as the new credential. So in terms of like what, what has opened up opportunities for me, um, in my career and what I see other people do is, um, you know, the track record of things I do publicly, like, you know, here I, I did this project and it grew the company by 300% and here's a case study on how I did it. Mm. Um, and I, you know, that's generated lots of new opportunities for me. Um, 
you know, both job opportunities and consulting opportunities and people that say, Oh, that's, you know, that's cool. Like let's, you know, you're an interesting, you, like, you seem to be doing interesting things. Um, let's hang out. Yeah. You know, one of the examples that, um, is a, is a nice go-to that illustrates this point is, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, this woman who wanted to, to work for Airbnb and, um, you know, a whole bunch of people applied and she didn't hear anything back. And so she created this, uh, Nina for Airbnb website. And, um, you know, it's like, Hey, you can, you don't need to know all my bullet point stuff. You can find that on LinkedIn, you know, where I graduate all that. That's boring. I want to tell you why I love Airbnb, what you do well and what I think I can help you do. And that went viral. It was crazy. And she got all these different, you know, job offers and whatever. And to me, it's not only an illustration of how demonstrating, okay, she put in the time to research. She created this basic website. She, she basically created value right then and there as a proof of her ability to create value. But it's also telling to me the fact that that went viral and became such a big thing. It just means that the bar is really low, that hardly anyone is doing this. People are still relying on, I've got a BA with a 3.7, which doesn't distinguish you at all versus I wrote a book. I ran a Kickstarter campaign. Here's this thing I built, you know, Google me and see what I've created. Um, I kind of feel like it's right there for the taking and those who realize it and sort of demonstrate what they've created and let, let their work be their credential. Um, man, there's such a, there's such a first mover advantage there. That was actually, so the way I got my first job was, um, very similar. I, uh, I bought, a, I used to own, what was the domain name? It was like kitchen furnishing, kitchen cabinet furnishings.com. Uh, and I put some content up on it and I set up advertising and I did SEO to it. And it was like making a couple hundred bucks a month. Um, and that was how I started working in marketing was I you just sent a company. I said, look, yeah, I built this website. Uh, I did SEO to it and I make like 500 bucks a month, uh, off advertising. And it's like, you know, if you take the same SEO added to this and we apply it to a more valuable industry and property than, you know, my kitchen furnishings.net site or whatever it was, um, that'll be really valuable. And that was, um, they said, okay, let's do it. I mean, I think the power of that compared to, you know, uh, a bullet point list that says like, you know, marketing skill, uh, leadership, good team player, right? Like <laughs> versus here, I actually built this and made money on it. Now, now how did you, what gave you that idea and what gave you the skills to sort of master SEO and things? Is that something you just sort of decided this is going to be valuable for me and, and taught yourself or was that, how did you, how did you pick that up? So I, it was maybe about 2010. Um, and it was like very early in the podcast era, but podcasts had kind of started popping up. And so, um, I was just walking around, um, I was teaching English in Brazil at the time. Uh, and I would teach in the mornings and nights, you know, before people went to work and after people got back from work. So I had kind of the middle of the day free and I would on the way to and from work, I was listening to all these podcasts about um, guys that were doing SEO, or Internet business stuff. And so, you know, I heard these guys tell the story about, um, yeah, like we figured out that there's, you know, this certain in Google um, long, really long tail keywords so like kitchen furnishing cabinets. Um, you can rank for, um, and they still generate significant amount of traffic and you can earn advertising revenue for, uh, through them. And so I said, huh. And so they kind of talked about their process for, um, how they were doing it. And so I started reading, um, there's a company called Moz.com. Now it was called SEO Moz at the time. Uh, and they put out like a, every year they have a really great free guide to, um, I think the ultimate, it's like the ultimate beginner's guide to SEO. And so I sat down, I just read that cover to cover, uh, and then bought a, a domain on GoDaddy for maybe 20 bucks and, um, installed WordPress, which is free, um, and started writing articles and figuring out how to rank them in Google. Uh, and then after maybe six months or a year, it was ranking in Google and, uh, people would come to the site and click on the ads. And every time they did, I made like $2 or something from Google. That's amazing. That's, I mean, I just absolutely love that. And, and I'm, I'm amazed at how many, how many young people I talk to who have done really cool stuff already. Like, um, you know, they've got a little business that they've started or they've built an app or they're, they're doing cool stuff and they still, they're still stressing about, well, I gotta, I gotta get into a good school or I gotta, and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, that, that signal that you get from the degree, 
it basically signals that you're like everyone else who has a degree. But you've showed me already that you are not. You're well above the average degree holder. You've done things that very few people, you already have a more valuable signal. So why are you stressing about getting the, the lower quality signal, uh, which isn't going to do anything in addition? You know, no one's, if they see the business you started, they're not going to ask, where did you go to school? Um, it's so fascinating. So I want, I want you to take on a couple questions that are, you probably get commonly um, that kind of, that kind of, you know, reflect the, the, maybe the uh, incorrect way that people are viewing risk with given some of these changes. So um, people often say, well, I need, I need a backup plan. Uh, so I guess, I guess I'll go get a law degree just in case nothing, I don't want to be a lawyer, but if nothing else works out, at least that will open doors for me. Or I'll go get a good degree in accounting um, because it, it's, it's seen as safe. It's seen as that's the thing to do that's safe. And maybe I'll pursue something more entrepreneurial, but I don't know that that seems really, really risky. So I'm going to fall on this safe thing, which is like, you know, four years, a hundred thousand um, dollars. But it's guaranteed to, to at least be a fallback. How do you respond to sort of viewing that, that kind of backup plan as a, as a safety net or those more traditional career paths? So I think the first thing I would do is to get really clear. I have to get very clear with people on how they define risk. And what I, what I usually find is that um, most people define risk as more or less synonymous with um, unpredictability and volatility. Like I'm not quite sure. It's you know it seems risky. It's not quite predictable, and it, it you know things might go up for a little while and down for a little while. Um, and I think that's a, a very poor definition of risk. I think you know the better definition I have to use is um, you know something that is risky. Uh, you know, is the possibility of an irreversible negative outcome, hmm. that something is going to happen, which is going to be, um, you know, death, obviously, being the obvious example, or, you know, bankruptcy, something happening so um, irreversible and negative that you you can't get out of it. And so I think, you know, when you start to redefine um, risk that way, that, you know, people say, well, I'll go get this in case whatever the um, entrepreneurial venture I'm interested in doesn't work out. Um, it's kind of a backwards way of looking at it because you can always go back and get that degree. Like that's, that's never going away. Um, whereas the, like the entrepreneurial venture, the odds that you're going to go into something there and it's really going to go so bad that you, you know, you couldn't go back and take out a loan and go to school if you really wanted to. Um, I think that's just, um, very, very unlikely. And I guess the, the other thing that came to mind while you were phrasing the question or asking the question was, um, I think the way people, um, you know, talked to, uh, someone that works at a venture capital firm a few weeks ago. And one of the things they were saying is if, uh, they have someone who has gotten an MBA in the last five years, approach them about starting a company, they will count that against them hmm. um, because to them that's indicative of, um, you know, I, I misunderstand risk or I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm so terrified of uncertainty. Yeah. Where, where um, can that, I go that, to get a guarantee? Yeah. That I went to pay, I paid an absurd amount for something that's almost certainly um, not worth it. Huh. Uh, so I think it's particularly graduate degrees and you know, particularly MBAs are the one I've heard the most about are increasingly becoming liabilities uh, in a lot of circles and a lot of industries that um, not, not only could it not be a good thing, it might not even be neutral. It might even be like you take out a hundred thousand dollar loan to get something that's going to count against you. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that simple concept of, of opportunity cost is so often lost on, on people. Um, you know, even even in some cases where maybe you have a scholarship or a parent is paying for something, if you don't know why you're going to get it for sure, you're just sort of like, ah, I might as well. You, you often hear, well, I, I might. I mean, I'm not enjoying it and I don't think it's making me any more valuable and I'd rather go, you know, do X, Y and Z, but I might as well do it because it's free. And you, it's not free, right? You hear whatever you're giving up to spend that time there is, is the cost. And oftentimes one, two, three, four years experiencing something, working at a few different places, apprenticing somewhere, starting your own business, traveling the world, what you can gain and sort of who you can become, the value you can add to yourself might be worth uh, far more than um, even a, a free um, education in many cases. So uh, on this list of, of, topics covered in the book. There's one here that says, um, you cover the scientific research on how giving up balanced living and embracing integrated living, uh, leads to more money, meaning, and freedom. 
what is the difference between balanced living and integrated living? So I had actually a really long rant in the book, most of which I fortunately, my editor was good. So she fortunately asked me to cut out. <laughs> um, but kind of the way most people approach work and the way most people think about work is to think of work as a disutility, which is a, a necessary evil that you have to suffer uh, in order to get a utility, so in order to um, earn money, to earn profit, to be able to pay for other things that um, you actually like. And so when you approach work from this way, um, it's something that you need to balance out. So I'm doing this thing I, I don't like um, for 40 hours a week, so I need to you know make sure I preserve my other 40 hours a week to do um, – something I, I actually like. Uh, and it, it's, um, you know, going back to of like all of a sudden you can do much more interesting creative work and it's profitable. It's more profitable than it's ever been. And it's becoming increasingly profitable. Um, it's a very, very poor way of looking at it. You know, instead of, you know, how do I do something that I don't like? Um, but you know, minimize it and kind of, you know, I've, um, I was talking with, uh, some lawyers the other day and they were kind of like talking about, well, you know, you, okay, so you go to the big law firm for five years and then you can kind of move on to a smaller law firm where the hours a little, uh, more reasonable. It was like all this like strategy about how you like manipulate your career to like, sort of like just, you know, it sucks, but if you could just do not too much of it, it won't suck too bad in aggregate. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a, this it's a is pain just, mitigation lifestyle. Yeah, <laughs> whereas, you know, you can take the totally different approach of is what if I find something I really like to do? And because, I, you know, I really like to do it, I love to do it. I'm going to become one of the best in the world at it. Uh, and the profit for being one of the best in the world at almost anything is really, really high. Um, and that, you know, all of a sudden you're in a scenario where it's not, you know, it's, it's a utility that you can go do something you like doing and it can also benefit um, the other aspects of your life, you know, like, so on a day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, going to the gym, I come back from the gym and I do work session, I, you know, do better work and, um, being able to work, um, that I, you know, if I'm not, I took maybe, uh, a week off over Christmas. It was the first time I've taken a, a, a week off in three or four years. And at the end of it, I was just like scratching to get back to work. I just <laughs> felt so, I was like, Oh my God, this is driving me crazy. If I have to go to one more holiday party, um, and so I think that's that's not the relationship with work that um, most people had that I knew growing up. And I think it's it's still not the relationship with work that um, most people have. And I think a lot more people, if they so chose, um, could have that relationship where, you know, work is an integrated part of their life as opposed to something that they're kind of trying to marginalize uh, and get past. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting if you really sort of abstract and say, okay, what is it? What does it take in a, you know, uh, at least in a free market society to to earn money from other people? I've got to create something that they value and exchange it with them. And when you and when you abstract that much, there's nothing about creating something that makes someone else's life better and having them say, oh, thank you. I'll exchange something that you value. There's nothing about that that sounds like, oh, that just sounds absolutely horrible. Like that's exciting, right? That's like when you're a kid, you draw a picture for your friend because it feels good. You're creating value for them and, or maybe you trade something. It's There's nothing about the process of, of earning a living that has to be this horrible drudgery. But I think the, where a lot of people get hung up is they feel – when you say do something you love, that sounds really daunting and stressful. Well, like, well, all the things I love, uh, no one will pay me for them. I like playing video games. I like, um, you know, uh, I like swimming. I like whatever it might be. I like to travel. How am I going to get paid for that? Yeah, yeah, supposedly, you know, a couple people, you know, Anthony Bourdain can get paid to travel around the world, but there's only so many jobs like that. Or, you know, there are professional athletes, but there's only so many jobs like that. How do you, how do you tell people to sort of help figure out that combination of things that other people value that are that are valuable in the marketplace and people are willing to to pay you for and things that you enjoy doing and that you love doing what's what's the process of finding that intersection like or or at least maybe if you you know if you have advice for other people or how has that been for you so the, uh, the way I always think of it is there's kind of like a Venn diagram with three circles and you imagine the three circles are um, what am I good at uh, what do I like doing and what is the market value? And so you're trying to find what the what the overlap of um, of those three circles on um, the Venn diagram are. So um, I think it's a good question. Uh, the thing I usually tell people, and I, this is kind of, this was the advice someone gave me and this was the advice I took, um, is 
you know, kind of start with what interests you that also has market value. I think um, I, I used to be, I was actually, this is a kind of a, another story, but uh, I read the Communist Manifesto when I was 18. And it was actually really influential on me. It sent me down a rabbit hole uh, for a couple of years. Um, and I, I, I had this, I hated marketing and I was very opposed to it. Um, and all of a sudden I kind of like started to get interested in it, maybe um, 22, 23. Uh, and I think I actually got really lucky that if, if you don't know what you want to do or you don't know what you're good at, I think marketing uh, and or sales is a really good place to start. Um, you know, one of the things we were talking about is this notion of, you know, transaction costs are coming down. Um, and part of what that means is, you know, you used to have to sell yourself, you know, three times in your career, right? You sold yourself to three different uh, in three different job interviews to three different corporations. And that was all you had to do. But um, now what you have to do is you have to sell yourself every day. You have to sell yourself to new clients or you have to sell yourself. Um, within the company, you have to sell yourself more and more and more and more. Um, so usually when people say, like, I don't, you know, I don't really know um, what I'm interested in, I don't really know what I want to do. Um, and I say, uh, what's, you know, what's interesting? Is there anything that's, you know, compelling to you that also has market value? And then if they, they say, I don't really know, I usually just say, um, like, get into marketing and sales. Uh, because whatever, whatever, you, whatever you end up being interested in, whenever you figure that out, um, that'll almost certainly be valuable to you. And I, I kind of, I got interested in writing, um, and having a marketing and sales background, uh, compared to most other writers is a huge advantage. Um, and it has paid off for me consistently. Yeah. I, I think, you know, some people are, are able to maybe theoretically or just, you know, contemplate different types of careers or different activities that they like or read about some and, and say, okay, I'm, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in that. I think combining it for, cause it's harder for, for, um, some people than others, but, but in any case, combining it with some real world experimentation and saying, okay, let me try, let me get sort of get out, get out into the world and try this or go work in, in this company or try uh, doing this project. I'm going to do a little marketing and, and see if I, if my criteria is usually see if I don't hate it. Cause often you don't know if you're going to love it yet. So see if you don't hate it. If it makes you miserable, just stop doing it. But if it doesn't make you miserable, try anything that doesn't make you unhappy and kind of see where it leads, uh, and just avoid the things that are, that are, you know, sort of sucking your soul and everything else is, is kind of fair game as you, as you begin that exploratory process. And then the field will continue to narrow over time as you realize which things you, you know, you like more and more. Okay. But I have to, I have to ask you more about, you mentioned you read the communist manifesto. It was really influential. Um, and then you go and you're sort of, uh, you know, doing marketing sales, you're writing a book about entrepreneurship, this is not what I would expect from someone who is a big fan of the Communist Manifesto. Uh, what what was the intellectual uh, progression like? So I read it. Um, I'm uh, 26 now. I read the book when I was, I think, 19, um, and I just got into college. Um, and I had actually read the book I read previously that made a big impact on me was um, Guns, Germs, and Steel Jared by Jared Diamond, which is terrific. And he, he kind of lays out this um, behavioralist explanation for why the world is the way it is. So the book starts off and it's him walking down the beach with a New Guinea chieftain and the chieftain's asking him, um, you know, why, like, why are the Europeans, why are the people descended from Europeans, you know, the wealthiest, most powerful in the world? And, you know, why are we... Uh, so marginal. And so he lays out, well, you know, there were certain crops that were available to um, the Indo-Europeans and Eurasia was, you know, the landmass with the most um, the livestock, domesticated livestock. Uh, yeah, and so it, it kind of like, um, I understood this, the, the way Marx approaches the Communist Manifesto is from this same kind of um, scientific, historical basis. Um, and then, you know, I very much saw in studying history, I was a history major, what, um, what Mark's kind of central thesis was, which is, um, we, you don't have access to the means of production and that sucks. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I agree with that and I still agree with that, like not having access to the means of production really, really, uh, sucks. And I think it's actually kind of interesting, um, what's happened with the internet and technology is, has in some way fulfilled Mark's thesis. Like, you know, it wasn't that, 
people became communal in order to get enough capital and power to access the tools of production. It was just that the cost of tools of production, you know, to buy a laptop or to get access to the internet just got so cheap um, that you didn't need this like, kind of whole political system that did never really work to, to make it happen. Yeah. You, got, you know, capitalism kind of got there through another means. Yeah. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing where you see the, the incentives built into the market, um, tend towards this, this decentralizing sort of democratizing effect where, you know, goods start as, as very expensive when they're new and only sort of the wealthy have a cell phone or whatever it might be, but the competitive pressure keeps driving that and making it more and more accessible. And you're seeing this incredible flattening, like we talked about before with access to resources. I mean, as we said, an iPhone, uh, you know, alone is sufficient now to start a, start a publishing company. And you still, you still have to face, it doesn't mean you'll be successful because because it's so democratized, it also means you've got to please those, those customers, uh, as well. You've got to find a way to do that, but that those barriers have come down so far. Um, many of the things that I think critics of, of early capitalism feared have resolved themselves through this, through this process with, without, you know, the sort of blood, blood, um, you know, revolutions and blood and things like that. And it's, it is a really, it is a really powerful, really powerful observation. Um, what is something, what's an insight, like a favorite insight from the book or, or one of the points in there that we didn't talk about yet that you, that you like and, and would love to, to, to mention to the listeners. So you probably, the turkey problem is probably the one that the most people email me about. Everyone's, <laughs> so you, you actually um, hit on the biggest one. I guess the other one I'll share uh, is there's a great book um, called The Long Tail uh, by Chris Anderson that goes into um, some that, of this. Is that the guy uh, who founded TED? TED, TED Talks? Uh, he was an editor at Wired Magazine. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sorry. I was... I don't think I no, I, actually, I think they have the same name. I think that, yeah, uh, I think they do. I think that Chris Anderson is also the, but Ron, different people say Ron name. Chris Anderson. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so he talks about one of the things that has happened with um, the internet is this idea of creating a long tail. So if you imagine um, traditional retail, there's a record store, or there's, we'll say there's a bookstore. You know, the biggest bookstore in the world stocks uh, 100,000 books. So if you're not in the top 100,000 books at any given time, uh, you effectively don't exist because, you know, there's a real cost. There's a retail shelf space cost to keeping your book um, on the shelves. Uh, and when Amazon came along, uh, all of a sudden that really changed. And all of a sudden what happened was, um, you know, Amazon has print on demand services. And so for all the books that they don't stock, they just have printers in their warehouses and, um, you know, they can leave a web page up, which has effectively zero cost. Uh, and when someone, you know, clicks the buy now button, they print off a book and they put it in the box and, um, ship it off to someone. So all of a sudden there was, um, this huge market space, um, of books that people wanted to buy, but simply like the economics of retail didn't make sense. Um, that all of a sudden became viable. So one example, um, I give in the book is, uh, there was a woman, uh, and she made songs for sailors. She was a sailor. She had uh, a little boat she sailed around on, uh, and she would write CDs and songs for sailors to listen to. Um, and you know, you can never imagine walking into Tower Records and seeing songs for sailors uh, on the CD store. Uh, but she was making a hundred thousand dollars a year um, writing songs for sailors uh, because she, you know, these are the three forces she talks about. Um, one, the uh, the percentage of the profit she was able to earn, right? She didn't have to go through all these middlemen and distributors. Um, she could just go directly to the customer through the internet. Um, the internet makes it easy to find those kind of products. You know, if you type in songs for sailors in Google, uh, like it just pops right up, right? It's like the first result. There's the search cost um, are very low. So you have, um, you know, it's suddenly the profit is viable, um, it's easy to find. Uh, and then the tools of production became much, much cheaper, right? So she, you know, if you used to want to record, um, music, you had to go in a recording studio and it cost you thousands of dollars to get a CD made. And now, um, you know, you have software like GarageBand, um, or, you know, cheap or free software, um, that you can actually produce, uh, music on. Um, and so 
this kind of touches on the same themes you're talking about, but the democratization of the tools of production, um, the democratization of distribution, you can distribute these things uh, over the internet, um, and then the creation of new markets that because of these two other things, all of a sudden markets like songs for sailors, which previously weren't, the economics just didn't work. You couldn't build, uh, you couldn't make a profit doing songs for sailors suddenly work. And so those three forces have opened up a lot of um, new opportunities that never used to exist. So uh, Taylor, I'm going to, I'm going to give you one final question. Um, what is the best piece of advice that you've gotten, or it doesn't necessarily, be, necessarily have to be the very best. Cause that, that might put a lot of pressure on you to try to remember, but a piece of advice that really stuck out to you and was very helpful. I think take the direct line is the one that has kind of most recently been rattling around my head. Actually, um, part of the reason I wrote the book that sitting at that same hotel, um, kind of talking about the origin story, I was actually talking with one of my mentors and what I pitched him on maybe three days earlier was, um, I was, uh, doing marketing consulting and I was starting to hire people and I was starting to build up an agency. And I, I told him this story like, well, I'm going to build up this agency and it's going well. Uh, and it's going to take me five years to build this agency up. Um, and then I'm going to sell the agency and then I'm going to, uh, write a book. And he's like, you're an idiot. Uh, that's the most, you know, circuitous route to writing a book you could <laughs> ever possibly take. You could not be any more inefficient. Like if you want to write a book, you know, it's their self-publishing. It'll cost you 500 bucks. Just sit down and write the book. Um, and he was very correct, uh, about that. So I think there's always this, um, you know, I've talked with other authors. They have like, well, there's this one, you know, big book idea I have, but you know, first I want to write this book and then I want to write this book and then I want to get to the big one. Um, and that, that always seems to be the wrong answer that you just go straight to the, to the one you're aiming for. Um, and usually that will create new possibilities, new opportunities that you didn't even knew, you didn't even know existed. That is, that is phenomenal advice. Um, man, I can, I can, I can remind myself of that regularly as well. Uh, Taylor, this has been absolutely awesome. You can go to taylorpearson.me and learn more about Taylor, his writing, uh, obviously the book end of jobs. It's available on Amazon. I just downloaded it on my Kindle paper white. I've got it on the top of my reading list now. So now after the interview, I will read the book. Um, Taylor, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on and uh, thank you everyone for listening.